Welcome to the ACO Show. We're joined today by Nick Bartz, who is the Vice President of Business Intelligence here at Allidade. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. We've joked that business intelligence may be an oxymoron, but why don't you describe for us what that is and what do you do at Allidade? Sure. So I see my role really as um, creating the crosswalk between big data and the actual day-to-day work out in the field of our practices where they're you know, treating patients and managing conditions. So, you know, it, it's all very fine and good to have a big Excel spreadsheet full of all the, the, the wisdom that, uh, that AI can create, but unless that is getting turned into a concrete a difference in someone's work or in someone's day-to-day life, then it's not really useful. And so I see business intelligence as really figuring out the way to ensure that you are taking the best of the best insights from, from your data analysis and figuring out the best way to make sure that you are sustainably and repeatedly um, creating change out in the field. Nick, you referenced big data, and you know that was... I remember that when that was such a buzzword that it almost had no meaning. And I think we're getting to the place, at least from my perspective, that it's plateauing a bit and people are starting to realize what that actually means. But what does that mean here at Allidade? And do you think that's true? Do you think we're actually in the part of the adoption curve where people are getting it and using that realistically? Well, I think it is big data in the sense in which there is just a lot of it. You know, we get more data than we reasonably have a use for or really understand how to extrapolate. Um, You know, we're sitting on mountains and mountains of data just from patients that aren't even in our ACOs anymore. Uh, And every month we get more and more from Medicare, from commercial payers, from pharmacy companies. Um, so it really is big. <laughs> and unstructured but, often. Yeah, and unstructured. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, people often think about big data and say like, oh, it's amazing you're sitting on this mountain of data. You must be getting so much out of it. And, but but I think you skip the step where you you think through like, what could I learn? What data would I need to learn that insight? And so when you actually strip away down to the questions that you know you want to answer and the things that you're actually trying to improve or solve, um, it, it actually ends up being a much smaller subset of data that you're looking at. And I think the, 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 um, the trick with the, the big data craze was that people thought that just having the data and then having the, uh, you know, the engineers and the algorithms to, to run any number of analyses that they wanted was just going to solve every problem on its own. But really, the same problem exists as has since time immemorial, which is what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, how do you, what, what do you need in order to solve it? And how can data help you do that? Not the other way around. You have been an executive director of an ACO here at Allidade. So I'm sure you have some sense of what it's like to get information from headquarters to take a look at this this volume of data while you have a lot of responsibilities. What's your sense of what's useful for them? What should they be doing with it? What should they be looking for on their own in, the, in their own local data? Yeah, I mean, I think the temptation when you are in charge of a market and running an ACO is to try and do everything in your power <laughs> to create change. And oftentimes, you know, what that looks like is just digging into absolutely everything. Uh, I was at a conference a couple months ago where someone referred to this as a prospecting, prospecting for gold nuggets in the data. And it's very tempting to do that. And I did that for, for a long time because, you know, you want to be the person that finds the, the, the overcharge or the, the overrun of spending or the one physician who's you know, uh, if billing fraudulent wheelchairs or something like that. You know, 
obviously then you can you know take a holiday for the rest of the year but the reality is you spend so much time looking for these um, these opportunities that you don't spend as much time thinking about how to actually do the things you already know how to do um, and what I found over the years at Allidade and elsewhere is that you know we don't always knock out of the park the low-hanging fruit you know we, we get up to speed with things like preventative care transitions of care we think we understand what we need to do and then we go all right on to the next thing but the reality is there's still so much low-hanging fruit out there it's just a little harder to get to uh, and so I found challenging when I was running my ACO was not necessarily trolling through the data to understand you know how we could be more effectively dealing with a, a ESR, ESRD patients or patients that were being seen by chiropractors, but how do you go into a practice that has already seen 80% of their patients for annual wellness visits this year and get the other 20% in? Hmm. What's the challenge there? Why aren't those patients coming in? And what's the real sort of boots on the ground solution to that problem? Because that's really the creativity that's needed in healthcare is how do we, you know, um, squeeze more out of people that really don't have any time in their day to do more. Um, because really a lot of the, the answers to our hardest questions are, are just figuring out how to more efficiently use the workforce and the capacity that we have and how to get past some of the real blockages when it comes to incentives, especially in the, the primary care practice. It sounds like what you're saying is that we have all this data out there, but in many ways we already know what to do. We know People should get more annual wellness visits. We know we need to be doing more preventive care. And the best use of the data may be figuring out how to get those things done. Is that a decent way to phrase it? Yeah, and I think when you start to look at the problem in terms of what are the blockers of continued improvement on a practice level or a physician level, then you start to be able to use the data in a lot more of an effective way because you can pinpoint you know, where you're seeing, you know, chronic issues and, and challenges with specific practices or physicians and where folks might need a little bit more help and start to really pile on resources when you're not seeing movement. And then, you know, you can make decisions like there are practices who are doing this extremely well. Let's learn from them and take the best practices that they're using and help to transfer them to the folks that might need a little bit more help. And you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't work on a practical day-to-day -day level is not necessarily something anecdotally that tends to lend itself to you know, large cross-organizational cross-pollination. You really have to dig for those insights and figure out a way to make sure that they're being spread across the organization. So you know, I, I see the big data question is less about trying to figure out you know, all the potential new possibilities in which we could reinvent the field of healthcare and more how do we take what works and apply it across the board to bring everyone up to the same level. On that note, what, it, what aspect of this is about storytelling with the data? Because you may have uh, a group of consumers, whether it's inside the company or our partner practices at Allidade, who uh, are not as familiar with some of the visualizations or the complex models. So. Who do you see as your, your end customer and how do you craft that data story for them? So I think that they're, we're customers and our practices and our physicians are also customers of that story. Uh, we need to understand better what we're seeing in the data in the context of the, you know, what's going on on the ground out in our practices. We can't understand a data point without understanding that healthcare system, both locally and globally in that market. Um, so we often take something to a practice and learn a whole bunch about how patients are moving through the local healthcare system that helps us better interpret the data we're seeing in, the, in that story model. 
Um, but at the same time, we also have to be really cognizant that when we are asking our practices to do something, we're, we're presenting what they have to do in terms of a workflow that makes sense for their practice. I mean, it's, you can't just go to a physician and hand them a list of patients and say, hey, look at this, isn't this neat? And then ask them to solve your problem for right. you. You have to say, hey, what's going on here is that this patient has been to the emergency department five times in the last two weeks because you weren't open at 5 p.m. when they came to visit your practice. So what we think you might be able to do is open up an extra hour of time in your day on Thursdays. So you really have to help bring them along with you and make it as easy as possible for them to make the change that you need them to make. Um, and really being able to tell the story of a metric or a data point helps you to do that. Um, and, you know, again, you're talking about people who have five minutes to sit down and talk to you in their day. So, you know, the more that you can make what you're saying accessible and make the data speak for itself, the better. You mentioned taking what works in healthcare. So can we talk about how do you know what works and what that means? You know, healthcare is so complicated. We are having discussions here often about care management, but then when you think about what that is, it can be that can mean very different things to different practices and can be about the personality of the person doing the job or their knowledge. And, you know, it's not like two mice and one gets an exposure to the chemical and the other doesn't and all other variables are the same. So how do you sift through that? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated uh, question to answer. Um, when you have one ACO, um, you know, you, you may do everything right across the course of the year. Your physicians may move heaven and earth to be better help their patients doing everything they need to um, and then you can still look bad on paper because suddenly your patients got a whole bunch sicker or you had eight patients who were diagnosed with cancer in the last six months of the year so that makes it really hard to say hey you did a really great job uh, but things don't look good on paper I mean that's that's not really helpful so you really have to pull back a little bit and start to apply more of a statistical lens to ask yourself, you know, what does variation look like between practices? What is a reasonable change for us to see from one quarter to the next with a patient population or a patient or a physician? And then really look at the data in the context of, of what is expected from a, you know, a statistical, you know, basically like a normal distribution. Um, and that's really hard to do, um, especially when you're talking about a, a business that has only been around for, for four or five years. I mean, we really want to make a huge impact immediately and we want that feedback. So sometimes, you know, you really have to push to take that step back and say, you know what, you know, this quarter's results isn't telling us anything. All it's telling us is that statistical volatility is statistical volatility. And I think healthcare is an incredibly difficult industry um, to really respond to feedback and incorporate it because there is so much volatility as opposed to you know, working in something like you know, consumer products where you get a very easy, quick signal of how things are going out in the field with just, you know, sales and volume. How do we solve that in, in the near term? Is it by uh, process measures as opposed to all outcome measures? Because um, as you said, if you're selling toothpaste, people buy it or they don't, you right. know, and if they're in a store, there's no way to track whether they pick up your tube of Colgate and go for the tube of Crest uh, for whatever reason. So um, how do you think about the balance then between process measures and outcome measures to get at that quicker and more efficiently? Yeah, I mean, I think it is is 100% the right thing to do to focus as much as possible on process measures. Um, You know, especially as you're starting to think about how do we do everything we can? How do we leave nothing on the table? 
focusing on areas where we have a proven ability to change patient care, like an annual wellness visit or a transitional care management visit, um, and just making sure that we're tracking that of all the opportunities that we had, we're actually knocking all of them out. Um, that helps us to really understand if in the long term we're going to see the impact that, that we think we're going to see. And, you know, when you think about something like an annual wellness visit or a transitional care management visit, there's a reason why Medicare pays for it. It's because they've done an enormous amount of research to show that it works. Um, so we don't have to worry that we are, you know, potentially wasting time and energy doing those because, you know, we know over time if we if we complete all those and if we're making sure that patients are getting the right, you know, CMS approved services that we're actually going to see the cost reductions that we want to see. Whereas, you know, if we're going out on a limb and, you know, we're working on things that, um, you know, we think might have an impact, uh, you know, we're trying to focus on an outcome measure, um, you know, potentially something that has an outcome measure around cost, um, there's an enormous amount of volatility there. And then the, the, the requirement to be much more sensible about statistical volatility becomes a lot higher. What do you set as your threshold? You know, if we're trying to uh, do work that, that leads to publishable papers, you know, we're going to be going for p-value or number needed to treat. How can you be comfortable with a, with a set of results to make a business decision? I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that we base everything that we do on an incredibly rigorous scientific analysis, and we have an impact analytics team here um, that is, you know, some of the best and brightest in the industry um, who really are given a lot of time to take a step back and think about these things and think about all the the variables that might be in play. And, and you know, I think we're all very proud of the fact that we've published several times um, on what we've seen in our data in terms of the outcome of the process measures that we've worked on. AWV is one specific example where we have seen, um, you know, highly statistically significant results. And I think what you know what you do is you you take what you can get uh, from what is um, statistically proven or at least highly statistically likely, and then you supplement you know as much as possible with you know best available evidence elsewhere. But you have to be very careful that you know you're not going out on a limb and putting a whole ton of resources into something in every market um, that we really have no evidence makes a huge impact and. You know, one of the ways in which we do that and way, one of the ways in which I try and think about it is to really give people a sense for, you know, what does it mean for you to actually create this change in the market? If you are, um, you know, if you are trying to work with specialist costs um, or institutional hospital outpatient spending, um, if you think that you are going to cut costs and improve quality, how many different hospitals do you have to create compacts with? How many different specialists do you have to convince to actually change the way in which they're practicing medicine? And when you break it down like that, I think very clearly sometimes you see um, the, the, the narrative we were talking about earlier and the pieces in play um, that you would have to change in order to create an impact. Um, so, you know, for specialist costs, you know, we might be focused on reducing unnecessary imaging use and you might look at the amount of unnecessary imaging in the ACO and it might be a huge number at first uh, you know it might be five hundred thousand dollars of imaging spending that is unnecessary but when you really break that down to all of its component specialists that are ordering those tests you realize that what we would have to ask our field teams to do is go into 50 different specialist practices and convince 50 different small business owners to change how they're doing their, their jobs 
And you don't even need a scientific paper to understand that that's not a good idea. So I think there are ways, you know, with the less secure, uh, scientifically validated initiatives to really get at the heart of whether it's going to be valuable or not. And we're talking about the, the link between data and action, how to get practices to change. Are there just a few things where you think if we could just do these couple of things much better, that it would go better for everybody? You know, there would be better health for the patients, uh, a better work day for the doctors, shared savings for the ACO. Are there a couple of things where you just think, oh, we just got to move the needle on these? Yeah, I actually, um, I think there's, there's one thing at the heart of a lot of the problems that we face and our physicians face. You know, I think when it really comes down to it, a lot of our physicians would naturally gravitate towards doing you know, what we're asking them to do. You know, a lot of this stuff is already out there. Um, you know, they go to conferences where they're told about these new opportunities. I, the, what it really comes down to though is whether they have the capacity in their office to actually change what they're doing. Um, and so I think that one of the things that always strikes me is that one of the number one reasons people go to the emergency department and then get admitted uh, is that the office is closed. Their, their local primary care physician office closes at 5.30, they call, there's no one there. And we know that if you go to the ER, you're likely to get admitted and that starts a whole terrible cascade of bad outcomes and unnecessary costs. Exactly. And so when you think about everything that could be alleviated with greater access to that primary care physician, you start to think about, well, well you know, how hard could it be to open an office for an extra hour every day and what would that actually achieve in terms of reducing these visits? And then you start to think about you know, the difficulties that a small business has with its payroll and its staff and you know, turnover and staffing and even being able to staff you know, for that number of hours of the day it can be really challenging for the margins that primary care physicians work on. So I think one way in which we could make a huge, huge impact on healthcare in this country is just figuring out a way to stabilize and help support primary care physician office staffing. When you think about, you know, often the greatest turnover is in that front office staff member, um, and that is a very, very high turnover position for a physician office. And they're the person who's going to answer the phone when the patient calls to try and get an appointment at 5.30. And often we're not paying them enough to stay after 5.30 or to field that call and figure out what to do with that patient. So. You know, it strikes me that there are some really, really low-hanging fruit in helping with that workforce and to support it that could help massively, massively drive patients away from the emergency department and in to see their, their primary care physician more often. Is that need and the desire to bring what we have in terms of qualitative data and marry it to the extensive quantitative data, is that what motivated us here to develop this group for business intelligence? Um, because this is relatively new for the Allidated team as a formal as a formal team. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, we come at this, we've, we've always had a business intelligence function at Allidated. Uh I think we grew large enough that we needed to separate out more of the impact analytics side of things, more of the uh, intense scientific epidemiological research on, uh, on what actually works from the day-to-day operational management that we need to do with our field teams. Um, you know, there's, there's always been this need to help provide that level of insight to the field or, you know, they're going to go off and do it themselves, often without the support of, um, you know, analysts that can really tell them how to understand the data. 
So we've always had that need, but I, I think that Allidate specifically has made a huge investment in really trying to understand this problem of, of creating change in a, in a quantitative way in recent years. And so this is sort of the natural evolution of that investment. And how do you think about presenting these reams of data to providers? You know, I, as a physician myself, people are often surprised by how little training there is in medical school on statistics, on reading scientific papers, interpreting the data. Um, I think the assumption is that physicians are all scientists and will will just be able to breeze through it, but it's it's actually not that easy for a lot of us. And it's it, it's what I always find funny is that it's led to um, really uh, strange uh, long term practices in medicine, in particular among physicians, where we'll base decades of activity on a single study that was done in puppies or frogs and we will what is that what is the you know what i'm talking about the um i think it's ciprofloxacin that you don't give it to children under a certain age because it has uh, is supposed to do tendinous damage but the study they did it in was in like golden retriever puppies and so it's a, any physician that you have when you're a medical student at least when i did back in you know 10 years ago they loved bringing that up when you parroted that you know board answer of why you don't give cipro to children. Well, like the entire opioid epidemic is sort of traced back to patient zero, one, one letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine about one, one letter that said it was okay to give people lots of opiates for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the physicians that we work with are obviously incredibly smart. You know, they can dig into a scientific paper and, and immediately root out um, the real takeaways there. And if there's any uncertainty in what you're telling them, they'll, they'll pick up on that very quickly. So I would never, I would never go into a, a you know, I'm not a, I'm not a trained clinician. I would never go into a physician practice and, and tell them how to do their job or present them a paper on, on how to treat tendonitis. Um, but, you know, I think that when it comes to what we're asking them to do, it, it's a lot more straightforward. Um, and you really need to be focused around patient level data. Uh, at the end of the day. I mean, if you're presenting aggregate level insights and, you know, high level, you know, here's how you look on paper for all 500 of your patients, you know, I don't think that's the level that they're working on day to day. And I don't think that's the level in which they understand um, whether they're doing a good or a bad job or not. And so, you know, eyes very quickly glaze over um, and the tendency is to, you know, try and figure out all the ways in which your insight doesn't make sense. But the moment you put a patient in front of a provider and say, hey, did you know this person has gone to the ED five times in the last two weeks? There's very little that there's very little pushback there. It's either right or it's not right. And so then the next question is, OK, so so what next? And so we try as much as possible to to make everything we do a patient focused, whether it's a list of patients um, or we do sort of like a case reviews of patient level spending or provider level spending for different patients. Um, but, you know, ultimately you have to figure out a way in which you can you know, get physicians to really engage with, with these insights. Um, and as I said before, you know, they got five minutes of time to spend with you. What tends to work really well um, is showing them how they compare to their peers. But, you know, back to your point about statistics, I think that's often abused um, for the same reasons that, you know, we don't really do a great job of showing bands of statistical volatility. And so often you can have a you know, group of 10 physicians ranked on their per capita spending per patient, um, and they all might have the exact same mean underlying there. But, you know, this year, this guy's at the top and this guy's at the bottom. 
one of the things I found is that you have to figure out a way to engage people on both ends. Because if you keep going in there, uh, you know, week after week and saying, hey, you're still at the bottom, or better yet, you know, like they're at the top and now they're at the bottom and you don't know why and they don't know why, they very quickly lose interest in the data that you're showing them. You, you need to be able to get them focused again around those process metrics and really helping them on a patient level understand, you know, what was I supposed to do? What didn't I do? And what do you want me to do next? Nick, any final thoughts on, on things that matter that we maybe ought to be paying a little more attention to? I think that one of the, the biggest challenges in value-based care is the primacy of the patient primary care physician relationship. Uh, when you think about all the value that that creates in the healthcare system, having that primary care quarterback of your healthcare, and really having someone who knows you back back to front, I mean that is the the source of a lot of really really great healthcare, and that's something that we heavily promote here, obviously. But it's it's a little bit of a double-edged sword from an access perspective um, because when you think about you know the person who is primarily responsible for your healthcare also wants to go home at 5.30 every day. And that is a sort of natural human right to not want to work 24 hours a day. So as we you know, promote the primacy of this relationship and further encourage our primary care physicians to hug their patients and our patients to go see our primary care physicians, we really need to be conscious of the fact that we're, we're creating an extra demand on their capacity, which is already mostly filled. And so one of the ways in which we're going to have to figure out how to move forward here, but, you know, or else we're going to really hit a wall, is expanding that capacity and expanding the ability of the primary care physician to be available and able to see their patients at other times of day and on the weekend when, when a lot of these unnecessary emergency department visits are happening. And I think that you know, really starting to think about team-based primary care models and extenders and ways to bridge the gap between the primary care office and the urgent care center uh, which is, you know, often the sort of cavernous divide. Um, that's how we're really going to continue to create incremental improvement over the years. I think that's a, a huge area where we need to focus. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been really interesting. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nick.